You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, a podcast hosted by me, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps online course creator, consultant, and a Docker captain. This podcast contains clips from my weekly YouTube live show, where I host a real-time Ask Me Anything style chat with guests and anyone who shows up on YouTube chat, many of whom are students of my Docker courses. You can find out more information, including show notes for this episode at brettfisher.com slash podcast. That's B-R-E-T-F-I-S-H-E-R dot com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I talk with Elton Stoneman, an architect at Docker. We talk about everything Docker and Windows, covering topics like WSL, Windows containers, Docker on Windows Server, and more. As a reminder, this podcast is listener-supported by those of you that buy my Docker, Swarm, and Kubernetes courses on Udemy. If you're already one of my 120,000 students, I thank you so much for your support. Just last week, we launched Kubernetes Mastery, which lets you dive into hands-on with the leading container orchestrator. I built this new course with my friend Jerome Pedazzoni, who's been teaching Kubernetes and Docker longer than almost anyone. You can get coupons for those courses at brettfisher.com, and we're launching more videos monthly, which you can also get notified on with my newsletter at brettfisher.com. Now on with the show. Uh, I have one of my friends on today. We have Elton Stoneman from Docker. Hey, how you doing, folks? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brett. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I'm super excited. We've been, let's see, we met like three or four years ago at DockerCon, I believe. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, and we've been jamming ever since. We've got similar backgrounds, and we both are huge fans of Docker. In fact, he was a Docker captain and then ended up working for Docker. And Docker captains are kind of like Microsoft MVPs. You can't both work for the company and be one of those at the same time. Yeah, so, unfortunate. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a so he's he's in the um, alumni program. If we had one of those, <laughs> yeah, I still get the swag, but I don't get. So. <laughs> That's right. I still get the swag, honorary swag. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about Elton. If you're not aware, he has he has stuff all over the internet. So you've probably heard him or watched his stuff or read his stuff and didn't know it. Uh, he's an architect at Docker, a ten time Microsoft MVP, which is really impressive. That's a decade of yearly MVP approvals. That's pretty great. He's a Pluralsight author, uh, lots of courses there. We'll talk about those later. He's uh, calling in today from Cotswold in the UK, and he's been doing Docker since the early days, the early releases. He's helped organizations for years now at every stage in their container journey, and he's been fortunate to travel the world speaking at conferences and running workshops, helping people learn Docker and what it can do for them. So thanks for being on the show. Oh, yeah. thanks for reading out the intro that I wrote so nicely. It makes me sound really good. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I actually like it when other people, uh, like, talking about yourself is harder than having yeah, someone else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so, yeah, that's why I had to defuse all those nice words by, by breaking in afterwards. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to do it myself. I, yeah. I, so, when I introduce myself, I just say, hi, I'm Elton. I work for Docker. Right, right. Which I mean, yeah, because if you talk too talk too long about yourself, people are like, "Okay, I get it. You know some things." Like, yeah, move, exactly. move along. And and <laughs> Americans are different at that. Like, we we like to talk about ourselves. I think uh, you know, British are definitely a little bit more humble, and I think that we could we could we could take some of that over here. <laughs> um, all right. So, in case you didn't all see like the words plastered everywhere. Um, Elton, because he's, you know, he's been a Windows guy, I've been a Windows guy for so long, we both love Docker on Windows. Excuse me. And I happen to be on a Mac now, but it doesn't mean I don't have a server, a closet with a 
at least a dozen Windows machines running right now. I got Windows on my laptop uh, running in VMs. And so it's Windows is everywhere. And a lot of my clients and a lot of our students and a majority of the students, in fact, are on Windows. So they I think there is a topic that everyone's always interested in how how do we make Docker on Windows better? What what are the new features on Windows? You know, how does Windows Server work? And so we're going to go through that this whole hour. Um, but first up, let's I think I feel like we need to back up and talk about where we are, like what's the current um, status. And I think we should talk about Windows 10 first, because I think the story is a little different on Windows Server. So what's like if the release is today with the, the latest release of Docker Desktop, what's the experience like? What's the features? All right, so so Docker Desktop on Windows is uh, uh, it, it's super because there are different there are different flavors of containers. So you know the basic the basic idea of a container is the process in the container runs natively on the host. You know that's just the the basic idea. So I cannot take a container that's built to run on Linux and run it on Windows because the file system is different. The the CPU might the, you know, the way you talked at that level just doesn't work. I can't and likewise I can't take a a container image that's got a Windows XE file in there and try and run it on Linux because Linux doesn't know anything about XE files. So the primary thing is that you, when you build your package your application, you're either going to package it to run on a Windows on Docker on Windows or Docker on Linux. Um, and then and then what's special about Docker Desktop on Windows is that it supports both. So I can run native Windows containers. So I can take my old .NET applications and this uh, and, and when you package up to run on Windows, there's there's kind of backward support to to forever pretty much. You got your Windows container can be based on uh, Windows Server 2016, so you, you can, you know, uh, 2019 or 2016, so it'll support pretty much everything that's out there. So you can take, and I've done this, you can literally take a 10-year-old uh, .NET 2 application, package it up with the Docker file, and run it in a container on Windows Server 2019. And Windows 10 lets you do that, unless you run your Windows containers. But you can also flick a button on Docker Desktop, switch to Linux containers, Behind the scenes, it spins up a Hyper-V VM, which is running Linux. Uh, it, it points your, your Docker command line into the VM. It's all super slick. You don't have to get involved with it. It just does, just works. And then you can run Linux containers and Windows containers. So, you know, it's a, it's a really neat way of, of getting started with that stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I think um, recently, the install for Docker Desktop, if you're new to Docker or if you are new to Docker on Windows. Um, the Docker desktop install recently has changed. I think it shows you a pop-up when you first install it, asking you, do you want, when, it's like, I can't remember exactly how it's framed, but it's like, do you want Windows containers instead of Linux containers or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Because it always used to default to Linux because right. the very earliest releases. So and that's one of the things that, like going back to our kind of shared history, one of the things that I most liked about Docker, because um, I'd always worked with Windows professionally, uh, but I had a kind of, like you, I had a couple of Linux machines lying around. I was always interested in Linux, but I never spent enough time, consolidated time to kind of get happy with it. So when Docker came out, I was like, oh, that, this is great. I can read about this fantastic open source project. And I can do a Docker container run, or Docker run back in the day. Um, I don't have to go to the GitHub page and download a bunch of software and then follow some build instructions and then find it doesn't work. I can do any of that stuff. I can just do a Docker run. And right from those early days, like Windows people were kind of along the journey. So Docker, yeah. you know, with Docker Toolbox, um, they made pains to make Windows users welcome, which a lot of open source projects just didn't. So yeah, that was you know that was always really encouraging that, that Windows was seen as a, a first class citizen, even when you couldn't have Windows containers, you couldn't run a Windows app natively in a container uh, until the year 2016, and and then you know Docker were working really closely with Microsoft to make that stuff happen. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. Uh, it's one of those things where I even 
every time I talk about Windows and Docker and I talk about or put it in a course or I, you know, make a video about it, I always have to put in disclaimer of it's getting better all the time. And, you know, if I'm describing a process, it sounds like it's a lot of steps. It's probably by the time you hear this, there may be a new release that has uh, better, <laughs> better support or better, uh, better workflow. Um, Cause you know, uh, containers were invented on Linux. So it has a natural multi-year advantage in the ecosystem, yeah. but I've, I've always been shocked at how much windows and how much Microsoft is putting into windows and even, you know, core kernel features and networking functionality and all this stuff to support Docker and Kubernetes and container, the container ecosystem. And they've not gone the route of sort of old school windows that we all knew from decades ago of let's invent a new thing and we'll call it, you know, Microsoft containers and it'll be totally <laughs> yeah. incompatible with everything else. And it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. It's been great to watch them sort of say, well, you know, Linux networking stack does this thing. Let's figure out how to plug that in on the window. Let's do, let's do it the windows way, but let's make it compatible. And I've always loved that, you know, Docker will put out an announcement and say, oh yeah, you know, uh, swarm just kind of works with the overlay, you know, networking on now on, on the latest, you know, like, some version of Windows with a certain patch. And I think that's, that's really great. And uh, it's, I feel like we're closer than ever to, you know, being a group of developers that can choose their host OS and then run whatever they want, regardless of their host OS cho uh, choice. Obviously, Windows containers only run on Windows. I mean, that's sort of, um, you know, a natural, something you would think that Microsoft is doing. But Microsoft's changing that, um, and we should maybe talk that, about that for a minute. Like when you start to get into the Windows world, you typically start talking about .NET, right? And I had to learn uh, a couple of years ago the difference between .NET framework and the .NET core, or now well, I guess what they're just calling .NET, <laughs> uh, which is turning into core. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so so .NET framework was the original .NET back in back in the old days when it was the Microsoft we're doing it our way. It was the kind of it was meant to be the the, the answer to Java. Really, it was it's it's going to be a run anywhere runtime. Uh, you could, there's going to be multiple languages. So there's C sharp, there was uh, VB .NET, Visual Basic .NET, um, and and that, that that was first released in 2002. So I mean, I started using it back then. So it was yeah. back of back in the day. I was I was working on really old IBM systems, and this new thing came along. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. And I've, I've been doing it ever since. Um, and so the .NET framework was this, uh, it, it's a runtime. So, so you install the .NET framework and then your app uses the runtime. So, you know, all the pieces to make it portable were always there, but it never really happened. Um, and the .NET runtime is, it, it's, you can, you know, you can build different types of application. You can build just console applications that sit in the background and do something. You can build web applications. There are different flavors of web framework that evolved over the years. Uh, as, as new technologies and new approaches emerged, they kind of got absorbed into the .NET framework. So yeah. when SOA was really popular, there was this kind of, there's this piece called WCF, Windows Communication Foundation, that let you do some really neat stuff with SOAP. Um, when REST got more popular, then that came in as well. And Gradually, this thing that started off nice and neat got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it became just a big mess because if I wanted to write a, a Hello World application that had one line of code, I'd have to install 900 megabytes of .NET right, framework right. to get it running. So, so that was that happened with .NET 3.5, and then then they started to stem things down, yeah. and then. And then they 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 wanted to get to, to to realize that that idea that this should be a cross-platform thing, but it was just impossible because the .NET framework had this this uh, by this point you know almost 15 year legacy with integrating with Windows it only ever ran on Windows different flavors yeah. of Windows like you remember 
Windows CE and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. They had some level of .NET uh, framework support, um, but you would never run it on Linux or Mac or you know that was that was never going to happen. It was too, it was too um, tightly coupled, right? It was too tightly coupled with Windows yeah, to yeah, to be exactly, able to be yeah. portable. Yeah. Uh, and plus, there was almost probably no desire to, to <laughs> get people off Windows and let them and let them do sure. that. And then, sure, sure. and then everything changed. And I think Docker was was you know involved in that because suddenly um, I can write my uh, Go application uh, and I can I can uh, package that to run on Windows or Linux. Uh, I can put it in a tiny container and, and I'm done. So um, I want to be able to do that with my you know my knowledge and my history of, of C sharp or whatever. And .NET Core came about, and it's conceptually the same. There's a there's a .NET Core runtime, but that is cross-platform. So I can run that on Linux, I can run it on Mac, Windows, uh, I can run it on my Raspberry Pi, the latest version. And they started porting over a lot of the .NET APIs, um, and it's all been done in the open. So it's all open source. So the very first few releases of .NET Core um, were an experiment, really, of Microsoft being out in the open and having to have these sorts of discussions, fairly right. major major architectural changes in the early days. And people, you know, if you were following along like, like I was right from the beginning, it was painful because, like, great things were changing all the time. And for each new release, you just threw away everything you'd learned and started again. But now it's really solid. Um, it's just coming up to the 3.0 release. Um, almost everything that, that you could do in .NET Framework, you can now do in .NET Core, but they don't have all the legacy of all the stuff. So it's it's slimmer, it's more modern, um, everything, you know, everything is super. So, and, and that .NET Core, um, it's it's cross-platform. They publish it all on, on Docker images, and it follows that kind of um, uh, the multi-stage Docker files that we've been telling people to do for years. It's completely in line with that. So there's a .NET Core SDK that you use in the first part of your build in your Docker file to compile your app. There's a .NET Core runtime for, for small apps, and there's an ASP.NET Core runtime, which is for, for web applications. So you know they understand. They've been working with containers so long. The images are, are, are highly tuned down. There's a there's an Alpine version uh, for Linux. There's a, a, a Windows Nano Server version for Windows. It's all really neat and, and everything. It just all works as, as you would expect. And the transition from .NET Framework to .NET Core um, is feasible, <laughs> but it's also not mandatory. So, right. so part part of what we do when we go and talk to people with a big legacy Windows estate, you know, they they literally do have .NET Framework apps that go back ten years, um, and no one's put any new features in them for eight years. And all that happens is every now and then somebody has to log onto the box, do a Windows update, and and hope that that everything works. Um, you can just take that app and run it in a Windows container, and that's fine. You don't have to rewrite it in .NET Core and move it to yeah. Linux because yeah. you know all the Windows stuff is supported. If you're still working on that app and you're breaking features out, then yeah, you can you, you kind of get this this position where the original big monolith starts to break up into smaller pieces. The new pieces are .NET Core that could run anywhere, and then like the monolith gradually sort of um, shrivels away. So that's that's what people are kind of doing there. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's yeah. that's I, I love that summary that there's a it's a common question, and I think it bears repeating that uh, you don't have to con you know migrate or convert or rewrite your app in .NET Core in order to use Docker. And I think uh, I was having, I was actually at our meetup, our local Docker meetup last month. And locally, we have 12 military bases in the area of Virginia Beach. It's one of the largest military areas in the US. And we, so we get a lot of contractors and the government loves .NET framework, Java, that, those sorts of enterprise uh, level tools. So tons, uh, our .NET meetup locally is our oldest and probably our largest meetup of all the tech meetups. Um, bigger than the JavaScript one, I think, on average. So 
that that group really cares about you know what are they you know the people that are coming out to meetups they're typically the people that are looking to the future right want to mm-hmm. want to learn the new things and um, there a lot of them are wor- you know not so much worried but concerned about the level of effort of like their future path for all of these legacy apps and they keep yeah. getting told that Docker's the future that they got to check this out but they're worried that it means rewriting stuff and so usually one of the topics we end up having in the Q&A afterwards is around, oh, no, no, there's lots of options. At least there's at least two options. One of them is do nothing and just get your <laughs> app, you know, get your app to work in a container and then it'll probably run a Windows server fine. Um, yeah. yeah. And um, that, you know, the other basic little things like you don't write Windows GUIs in Docker, like because the .NET framework was so big, it you could provide desktop apps and they, that's not yet a thing that Docker is really meant for. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, uh, you know, that framework, um, or a core, yeah. rather. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right there. So, so that, that, that process that I described with .NET Core, where, the, where Microsoft are publishing images with the SDK and the runtime, they do that for .NET Framework 2. So, yeah. you know, they, those aren't cross-platform images because they only work on Windows, but they let, you do, they let you follow the same modern patterns. So all of your apps can have a Docker file, which does the build, so the whole thing is portable, um, Docker Compose file, uh, Kubernetes manifest, all that sort of stuff. So it doesn't matter how old it is, it just comes along. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, it's a really nice way of having consistency across all your apps. Yeah, yeah. and I think, I think I've had some uh, students that, you know, for hobbyists, for traditional, you know, Windows kernel built EXEs that we all think about, um, I, I have heard people talk about getting, you know, command line and server binaries running on Docker Linux with Wine, but that's not really the inner, you know, the business way of getting those tools over to Linux. Um, if you are you interested in cross-platform, uh, I don't know if your advice is the same way, but my advice has been, you know, um, if you're interested in cross-platform, look at your projects moving to .NET Core and, like you said, pulling out little pieces of the monolith that you might have. And slowly getting those cross-platform. It doesn't even mean you have to run them on Linux. You might want to stick yeah. with Windows to, to start with and have Windows containers running .NET Core. And then eventually, if you feel like that Linux gives you some sort of advantage or cost savings or whatever you can think of there, is that is that kind of your advice? Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, you know, we, we work with people who all their operational experience is Windows. Like they want to get the efficiency benefits and, you know, the license cost savings and moving to containers, but they're not ready to make the Linux move yet. Like, that's totally fine. Like you say, you can take, you can take, um, you can run a whole swarm that has, uh, that is 90% Windows nodes and 10% Linux nodes. And you can gradually put, you know, some of your, some of your new applications that are in, node or java or whatever can can live on those linux um linux nodes in your swarm and the rest can all be windows and you you may have a long-term roadmap that says as we're breaking up these old applications we're going to move bits to .NET core as we gain more and more confidence with linux we're going to move them and run them on our linux nodes in our swarm and gradually your your swarm goes from 90 percent windows and 10 percent linux to to bigger and bigger so you're using more and more of the um of the Linux servers, and ultimately you're going to have just a handful of Windows servers running Windows containers for the, the apps you don't want to move. And as you break those things up, then they can just communicate across the whole swarm. So, of course, uh, and same same deal with Kubernetes. It's newer in Kubernetes, but I can have my Windows components running in a container on a Windows server, talking to my new Linux components running on a Linux server. It's all you know, seamless and all that stuff. Yeah. In fact, yeah. that's a big thing this year, right? And when we start talking about servers is uh, Kubernetes. Is the Kubernetes Windows support GA? I'm trying to remember. Yes, yes, GA as of uh, all of all of a month ago, maybe two months. Yeah, 
And um, Docker Enterprise, I believe, had a head start on that, right? They were working with the Microsoft team and... Yes, yes. So we, uh, you know, we, we work closely with the, with the Windows Server engineers and we have done ever since they wanted, they came to us and said, you know, we want to do the Docker. Um, so the next, the next release of Docker Enterprise will have support for Windows nodes in Kubernetes um, and we're making it as seamless as possible. So I think the idea is going to be like um, when you, when you join a node to your swarm, uh, it will, it, you can either join it as a swarm node or a cube node and it'll be as simple as that. So you won't have to worry about the Kubernetes side of things of spinning up the kubelet and registering with the, with the kube API, that's all taken care of for you. So that's all, that's all super nice. Um, the clouds, the, the, the two main clouds have uh, Windows node support in preview. So you can go to Azure and you can spin up AKS, which is the Azure Kubernetes service. Uh, and, and add Windows nodes to your to your cluster. Uh, like I said, it's preview now, but it'll it'll be GA soon. Um, and it, it works in a very similar way to it does uh, to, to the way it works with Docker Swarm. That you have your application manifest, um, and there's just like a, a, a hint in there that says this particular part. So in in, in Swarm, you'd say this service. Uh, in Kubernetes, you say this pod needs to run on Windows, um, and that's it. That's the only thing you do. So so you can you can just Add, add the bits of your application, you still describe them, you still package them with a Docker file, you still describe them with your manifest file. You just flag the bits that have to be Windows and then you just throw it to the cluster and the cluster manages everything in the same way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and for those that, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there and there's a lot of good stuff out there, but one of the things that, um, you know, you work for Docker, I don't work for Docker, nobody's paying me to say this, but uh, my experience has been that if you were on Windows Server and I used to be the guy 10 years ago running in an, a pure Windows team in, in the enterprise, you know, like 15 sysadmins. And we were keeping, we were actually keeping Linux out, not because it wasn't cool. It was just, we all of our expertise was, you know, we hired people specifically for Windows. So we had this excellent team up and down the stack from the hardware to the, you know, the framework apps. Everybody had their, we had storage experts and they were all focused on Windows. So one of the cool things was the monoculture of that created a synergy where we, you know, we were, we we didn't have to worry about two or three or four different OSs and have to have yep. different experts that didn't understand the other parts. We really had a uh, everybody was you know certified and it was a really great environment. Um, I don't really think that most environments are like that anymore. <laughs> if there's anything, if, you know, Windows environments are getting invaded with Linux. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that uh, Docker Inc. in particular has put a lot of effort into the Windows side of it, and they're. I feel like they're really the leaders. So if you're out there and you're you're a Windows shop, you have Windows servers, and you're wanting sort of the best today, t tools today, I feel like Docker, Docker Desktop, Docker Enterprise, they even got a Docker Desktop for Enterprise now. I think I feel like that whole product line is the best you can, pr you can get right now on Windows. And in fact, I don't believe that Microsoft makes their own orchestrator for Windows. I, I feel like it's their, I don't know what their official statement is, but I feel like they're basically saying go get Docker Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, so in, well, in Azure, the, 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 then AKS is the thing. Um, yeah. They have they have this product called Service Fabric, but it hasn't had um, it hasn't had a lot yeah. of investment lately because I think they focus on Kubernetes. That's right. I forgot about so, that. Um, 
yeah yeah so i think you know i'm i'm totally biased because i work for docker but the i've used uh lots of different uh, uh platforms and, and enterprise is certainly the best for windows because you know it just it just works in the same way that you'd expect it to and so we have a lot of we have a lot of clients now so so um just to clarify that so docker swarm has had windows support for the last kind of three years yeah. in year yeah. one not everything worked in the same way with windows and gradually that's got better and better and we're now at that stage with kubernetes so windows support is in there but not everything works in the same way uh, with with Windows pods as it does with Linux pods. Right. Um, right. So so Docker Enterprise gives you the choice. So a lot of our customers now they uh, they may be running Swarm uh, entirely through choice. They may be running. They may have teams where well, on a single cluster. Some teams are running Swarm. Some teams are running Cube. Uh, and in and in that scenario, the teams who are who are publishing and maintaining Windows stack will be using Swarm. But you know, with the opportunity to to move to to Kubernetes if they want to. So yeah, it's all it's all. Um, right. And, and uh, what I love about that, and I, I guess you, you have the same thing, um, Brett. When you're when you're teaching Kubernetes. It's just so complicated, and the learning curve is like this. So yeah. I tend to teach Docker Swarm first anyway, because because migrating to Q from Swarm is easier than starting from zero. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I I'm glad that there's someone else out there teaching it that way, because uh, like my go-to conference in a month, uh, shameless plug. The, uh, you know, <laughs> it's it's my second attempt at a workshop that is you're gonna you're gonna learn Swarm and you're gonna learn a little bit of Kubernetes and you're gonna we're gonna talk about differences, pros and cons of mm -hmm. each along the way. Yeah. And of course, there's not a lot of people out there that have bothered to learn both at a level that they could probably teach it. So yeah. I, I respect that people, if they know that, you know, bravo to you, because I have, you know, it's been years now of just training myself, uh, you know, to prepare myself for the clients. And just last night, I was recording some new videos for our up uh, upcoming update to Docker Mastery on Kubernetes. And it, I had to, one of my challenges was, at some point, you have to stop. Like Kubernetes, <laughs> yeah. Kubernetes goes on forever. Like absolutely, yeah. You yeah. could you could fill whatever. Give me a block of time. Give me a year. Give me give me twenty eight hundred hours or whatever it is. <laughs> I will fill that with Kubernetes content, and it won't yeah. even it won't even go into the esoteric stuff. It'll be filled with just the storage drivers, the CS. I mean, it just you name it. Networking providers, uh, GUIs, yeah. third party tools, uh, monitoring, logging. It is endless, and so I think. Um, you know, one of the things I think I started talking about was I give people permission to not know everything, you know, that you <laughs> you can't operate an enterprise Kubernetes environment alone. It's just too big of a thing. Yeah. You might be able to do that with Swarm. Yeah. Um, th it's just the difference is you're not going to have every possible feature you could ever want. That's that's the job of Kubernetes. Swarm is like yeah. the 80-20 rule. You get the 20% yeah. of features that 80% of people really need. And when you want to go to that uh, to those edge cases, I guess you could say, or just uh, the highly complex enterprise environment, you're you're probably going to want to jump over to Kubernetes, and but that's going to be a forever journey. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I have exactly the same thing because I, I do a workshop which is uh, like it's, it's Docker for Windows people, and I start from zero and I do the .NET stuff and the .NET Core stuff and the breaking up your monolith and all that. And I'm adding Kubernetes into it. Shameless plug. I'm in Techarama in Belgium at the end of the month doing that workshop, and nice. in that. It's a whole day workshop. Um, I start from zero and I, I include Swarm and I include production readiness. And, like It's just a barrage of information. All the content's online, so it's all on, uh, I can put it in here, I'll put it in the chat. It's all in, um, uh, the, the, all the stuff's in GitHub, the presentations are all online, so you can go and repeat it yourself and you know, get familiar with it. But I want to give people the, the full flavor of what this stuff looks like so they can come back and, you know, they can bring it back and, and start and start bringing it into their enterprise. But, and in a day, you can, you can give Swarm 
uh, a good enough, you know, a good enough covering to get people the, the core stuff. I'm going to add Kubernetes in there, and I, at the moment, I'm, I'm thinking I, I need to give Kubernetes no more than 90 minutes, and I'm not going to touch the surface. <laughs> <laughs> the um, yeah, I mean, j- j- all of this stuff, especially if someone's even new to containers, like. Uh, uh, I think at DockerCon every year, I do get people that come into my Swarm workshop um, and they, they're new to Docker. And I generally say, you can, you can stay here, but it may not be the best use of your time. <laughs> because if you, don't, if, you don't, if you don't know containers uh, well enough to make them, right, to make images, and, and you haven't used them at least for a little bit, orchestration is not the first thing you want to learn. Because um, I did have some uh, consultants from a very large consulting company come out and to a presentation and at the end of it, they're like, this just seems like a product trying to find a market or something like that. And some, some, something that where they were like, I don't get it. And I, I realized, oh, because I was talking about orchestration and you, if you haven't seen and caught on to the bug of containers itself, orchestration, you just looks like a problem looking for a solution, right? Or a, solu- <laughs> sorry, a solution yeah. looking for a problem. Um, and, and, you know, and a company making up a thing that they need to sell or something. And that, uh, cause you know, orchestration, if you look at that weird timeline, you know, where Swarm Classic came out, Kubernetes came out, Swarm came out, Nomad came out, like nobody, like this stuff had not been invented before. No one had ever done this. And it all happened within a couple of years. And Mm. there was a, it it wasn't like there was a grand conspiracy of companies saying, let's go make some products to sell. It was more like, (laughs) we have everything in containers and this is the next hurdle. Like everything is super fast, except our management of servers and deployment to the servers is still very slow, painful, and a lot of tedious, right? A lot of tedious yeah. work there. And mm-hmm. so everyone kind of uh, came up with these same ideas, different ways to implement the same idea at the same time was, was we need a bunch of servers and w- one command line to cro- control them. And we need the servers to make decisions for us. We can't, we can't expect admins to constantly make all these decisions all day about where should I run this? Where should I run this one? And mm-hmm. uh, that's, you know, I feel like it, it's a, w- when the history books are written and there's the Netflix documentary special about containers. Uh, there will be an interesting segment where they talk about the, uh, the the arc, yeah, the overarching <laughs> theme of orchestration, right? Um, let me go through. Uh, let me go through some questions real quick. I'm actually going to no, scan the, the comments, but while I'm doing that, why don't you uh, why don't you tell us about? I know you've got a bunch of links for people on all of you. You've got books, you've got conference workshops, you've got courses on Plural Site. You're just everywhere, and someday yeah. I will have a fraction of your content on the internet. Um, I want to have a whole segment where we just talk, talk about the developer experience on Windows 10. Um, yeah, okay. But we actually have some questions, and I wanted to cool. bring those up. We have some, some definite accolades there. Uh, Charlie's talking about um, he's, he's, he's grateful uh, and thanks both of us uh, so he knows your work and is a, a fan. And then oh, <laughs> we have, uh, I, I posted, posted this up, uh, Frank is also a fan. He said... Uh, Good to see Elton on the show. His tutorials help me containerize my legacy .NET framework applications. So, bravo. Right. That's, uh, I think, the minute you get a .NET framework app, which traditionally, especially if you're talking about like an ASP.NET or something, uh, once you get that running in a container on a server, and you know, I feel like that's when you're, you're, you're truly hooked. Because if you can give that, if you can get a sysadmin to just learn a little bit, and I'm a sysadmin, so... You know, we're we're slow. We're old. We we don't necessarily adopt the latest things like developers always do. And if you can get them to just, if you can just take a, a Windows Server, install Docker on it, tell them that, hey, by the way, this 
this Docker Basic, which I think is the licensing level of the Docker Enterprise. It comes with Windows Server. We can actually use our Microsoft support contract to get help for it. And then, oh, by the way, here's like just a couple of commands, and boom, it's running my .NET container. Uh, you don't need this really long install process and to move things into IIS and to copy things over and make yep. up an MSI or like, you know, you don't need any of this stuff. Um, I think that's when you'll start to hook your sysadmins is like, yeah. Th- th- yeah. yeah. And when I give you a new version, this is only, th- there's this one command you <laughs> If you can yeah, get them on right. that, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what I do when I, when I show a Docker file to people for the first time from their Windows background. So, you know, your, your old install document that was 30 pages long that had all the little pictures that said click here and it was all yeah. out of date and never worked. Forget about it. Now it's 10 lines of script. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it, it, I mean, you know, it wasn't, it was maybe 12 years ago. I was in an enterprise with 7,000 users and our deployment guidelines included screenshots of MSI installers for servers like that. Yeah. That was the world we lived in. And I think yeah. it was, I mean, that was very, you know, I would say that that was probably even normal <laughs> for Windows. Definitely, Windows definitely, yeah, yeah. Windows I'm not companies. joking. I have written 30 page install documents with lots yeah. of screenshots because we would, uh, we would give a, like a, a 10 point guide to our admins and they'd say, no, I want every single step documented because I want to give this to an intern and know that they can do it. So every single screen had a screenshot with a little arrow saying, click this button don't click this button, type this in here. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. right? It's like, uh, copy this key, but you can't get this key here. So you go to this other place, get this key, copy it and into it, and you're on a server and you're like, how am I, I mean, back before we had remote desktop, if you've been around that long, uh, you know, it was like, how do I get to the server? Like, I'm on the server. How do I get to this document on the server? I don't even have Word on a server. I'm, I'm standing at the console. <laughs> and the data center. Uh, you know, you had to put everything in. Note. It was, it was like... I feel like Windows has come farther in terms of the pain and suffering of deploying stuff in the data center than Linux, because Linux always had that, you know, oh, we're going to write some bash scripts. We're always, you know, we're going to write some make files. And they had that that programming background that uh, and Windows, you know, I think that was really the biggest thing that, you know, I I was learning Windows back in the 90s and I was uh, in the Navy running Windows on a ship uh, in the middle of the Atlantic. And that was when I first had experiences on Windows NT. And it would it was an instant genius move. I felt like because we were doing HP Unix, we were using Novell Netware, we're using all these different systems, but all of our machines were Windows. And like when we were sitting on our our desktops, they were all Windows. And then suddenly, there's now a server that looks just like my machine. And I feel like that that decision alone, which was so counterintuitive to everyone else in the in the in the uh, world really that was developing server operating systems, they said, "Hey, let's make this just like the machine they use all day." And yeah. it worked. <laughs> I mean, like, yes. we adopt, we yes. all adopted it. It all, you know, it became very popular. Yes, and we're still feeling the pain. <laughs> right, right. But the, the, side of, the side effect of that was Windows. click and drag, but you can't automate that stuff. Right, that's right. That's, the, that's I guess that's the point I should come full circle there is it's like <laughs> but that, that world was not designed for automation. So we have problems. Um, I have a question here. Um, so there's a question in from Docker on Windows support IPVLAN network driver. Do you know about uh, that? So I think Pop the quiz. answer, it, well, it depends on, on what you're running, uh, whether you're running like, uh, whether you're trying to run a swarm or whether you're trying to run Kubernetes. Uh, I, I don't know the, uh, I don't know for sure. Um, I know there's a whole bunch of networking stuff that's going into Windows Server 2019 to support all the flavors of networking that you need in Kubernetes. So like Brett said, uh, like the Windows networking stack before Docker was, you know, kind of, it did this and the Linux networking stack has always done that. Um, and Docker took 
took advantage of a lot of those pieces and that had to come into Windows. Kubernetes is taking advantage of a lot more of those pieces. So Windows is still adding a lot of that stuff in. Um, one of the biggest, you know, we, we work with the, the Windows Server team and, and some of the biggest effort in Windows Server to make it work with Kubernetes has been around the networking stack. So short answer, I'm not sure, but uh, if it's a kubernetes thing, then it, it's, uh, it's either on the roadmap or, yeah, it's, it's going to be in preview. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not seeing anything popping out on Google because I'm assuming the person has, has looked that up, just done a quick Google. But I see stuff on IPv LAN, I see stuff on Mac VLAN, but it's not Windows yeah. specific. So, uh, yeah. you know, if it, that's the thing about Windows containers is if it's talking about Docker containers and it doesn't specify Windows, it's probably assuming Linux. Like that's still kind of a thing is that there's a, a, a whole world of, you know, three or four years of work in, in Docker land that wasn't about Windows. So Windows is sort of the exception still. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's why you need a good book. Yeah, that's why you need a good book on lunches. Um, <laughs> and uh, another question uh, from Biker. Even Core is pretty large. Has Microsoft ever considered making something like a composer build version where you would include only the required DLLs rather than the whole Megilla? Uh, <laughs> uh, not, uh, not the whole OS. Uh, so you are in luck because with .NET Core 3, which is going to launch in a few, week, uh, few weeks' time, or no, next week, um, you can do exactly that. So, so you still have to sit, if you want to, uh, the, the .NET Core, you can build um, like, a, uh, like you can with Go, like you can with GoLang. You can build uh, a targeted executable for a given platform, and you can have that to be a slim XE. So, so you, as, as a developer, I just include all the .NET Core SDK. I use the bits that I want to use. But when I publish it, they, you know, there's a whole bunch of, of curious flags that you have to use in the .NET publish command, but you will get that. You will get uh, an executable file, with only enough bits of .NET Core that you're actually using, so I don't know, like I don't know if you're going to get back to having a 50 kilobyte um, DLL, but you you don't get anything you don't need. I, yeah, so um, I don't think I I don't I think I wasn't really thinking about that. So okay, so on Windows Server um, today, you have a choice on and and this is actually a question. Uh, you have a choice on how you package up your container, you can either have it running in a basically a, a Hyper-V uh, sort of environment that has, you know, one of these uh, minimal Windows OSs or the full Windows OS that people, that's when people talk about these multi-gigabyte images, they're talking about that. But there's also another option, right? And what is that flag on the command line? I can't remember off the top of my head for running a... So, um, so the, the, uh, you're talking about the uh, process isolation. <coughs> yes. Yes, so yes. Yeah, process isolation, it, that, a bit, that essentially, I think, allows you to do like a, a scratch, right? Where you can start, no, you can't do a scratch? You can't do scratch. So, so, so there, are, there are two things there. So firstly, the base image that you choose, you can't use scratch. It has to be either Windows Server Core, which okay. is your multi-gig multi, multi -gig image. The reason it's a multi-gig image is because it gives you backwards compatibility for your 15-year-old app. So it's got all that stuff in there. Um, or you use Nano Server, and Nano Server is uh, 100 meg. You can't run, it's not the full Windows API. So you can't run .NET Framework apps, but you can run .NET Core. You can run Java. You can run uh, Go. You can run Node.js. So you know that's that's where you're going with your with the newer stuff. Um, and then and then even though you know when people when people come to Windows containers from a Linux background, they go, oh, Docker run uh, Microsoft slash Windows Server Core, and it downloads these you know two gigabytes of stuff, right. and they're, they're, yeah. they're saying, what is this? But it's the same. The, the the architecture is the same. So that two gigabyte image is actually several image layers. 
they're all read only and they get shared between everything else so you know yeah. it's it's a one-time thing really um and that's the price you pay for having all that backwards compatibility. The process isolation stuff is slightly different. So that's the image size. I've got to choose either Nano Server or Windows Server Core or some some derivation of that to, for my image. When I run my containers, I can either run them as Windows Server containers, which are just just the same conceptually as Linux. They don't have C groups uh, and namespaces in Windows, but they have similar concepts. So that when I run my container with process isolation, which is the default on Windows Server then those those processes run natively on my Windows machine. If I've got access to the machine, I can go and look at the task manager. And if I'm running 10 web server containers, I'll see 10 instances of ASP.NET. So, you know, the process runs natively on the machine. There's this other thing called Hyper-V uh, containers where there's this, the container still, it's still the same Docker API. So I still do a Docker run and you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, but when you spin up the container, it runs inside its own tiny virtual machine they call it a utility vm and that tiny virtual machine um gives you an extra layer of isolation between containers now it gets complex a little bit quickly but the the reason for having that is for um like shared environments where you you are you're maybe you're running some software for your customers so you know bring your own bring your own container image i'll run it on my platform but i have to expect hostile behavior so by having this by having my container wrapped inside this tiny vm it's an extra layer of protection so even if someone does find a hole in um in the docker layer or in the windows container subsystem if they break out of that container they're not on the machine they're just inside this tiny little hyper v vm which which you know it, it just adds a little layer of protection between the containers um unless you're in that kind of hostile environment then normally you would use windows server containers because same reason you use Linux containers. They're more efficient. You can cram a lot more work on, and they'll just share share the, the resources of the machine. So yeah, that's that's the, the two the two different things there. The base image, either Windows Server for old apps or Nano Server for new apps, and then the runtime is either process isolation, which is the more efficient, or Hyper V isolation, which gives you extra protection. Yeah, and so I, th yeah, I think that answers this question. And I mean, because I feel like a 100 meg image for Nano for process isolation isn't that's not that's not a big deal. Like, no. you know, no. I mean, I mean yeah. who, who doesn't have a hundred meg on a server, right? Um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, I feel like that you know, there's there's a difference between. Let me back up. This isn't a unique problem to Windows, like you're saying. Um, if I want to do a Node app or a PHP app or anything where like .NET Framework, it is um, it requires an it, underpinnings of my code, not just my code itself. Uh, and I'm not packaging it in a binary that's a single little binary with all the dependencies built in. Um, that's still a problem. Like Node, you know, you get a default Node and it's uh, on Linux, it's 800, 700 meg, something like that. It's not small. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I feel like the difference we're talking about is between framework-based applications that are script languages that don't, you know, bundle all of their dependencies and then stuff like you know, like you're saying, .NET Core 3, that's pretty awesome. Uh, Go, everybody loves to talk about Go because it can do that static binary. And mm -hmm. um, adding 100 meg to simply get Windows support for that nano image, I think is, that's fine. I mean, at, th at that point, I feel like I don't really need Scratch because, yeah. you know, I'm not, there. there's not as many Windows IoT devices out there where you have to worry about 100 megs on a flash card or something like that. Like, that's a, a yeah. pretty distinct problem to, to Linux. Not I know we've had Windows CE and stuff in the past, but you know those things. Those things still come with a lots of RAM and a and a at least a hard drive in them. So, um, yeah. 
All right. So we've got this whole other topic on Windows development, especially like WSL2 and doing stuff on Windows 10. But before we kind of dive into that, I wanted to get through some more questions. Um, let's see. Uh, Biker saying, we had a lot of trouble with Windows nodes in Azure. Docker Enterprise doesn't seem to play well with Swarm. Um, perhaps just an Azure problem as we've had issues with Azure Linux too. Okay. Interesting experience. So, yeah, yeah. So the um, so so Docker Enterprise works fine as you are, and if you if you follow our uh, uh, our Docker certified infrastructure thing, which spins you up the whole cluster, then it, it spins you up a cluster configured such that you shouldn't get any issues. Um, I, I suspect the problems you're describing are about um, the networking layer, and obviously the cloud networking layers are different from just having a you know a bunch of Cat six cables plugged into machines. Um, there's a lot more indirection and virtualization in there, so. I would hope that what you're saying is is just to do with um, the networking between the between the machines because I run you know I run all my stuff on on uh, a, a Docker Enterprise stack in Azure you know my my blog runs on that anytime I do any demos it all runs on that stuff yeah um, and you know I, I I haven't had any kind of problem so I suspect it's to do with the setup uh, if you look at Docker certified infrastructure um, which we recently released which has support for AWS. Uh, VMware and uh, Azure, and we're adding more. It's basically a it's, a it's a nice little way of spinning up your cluster with all the best practices. It, it generates all the right components for the relevant target. So, like in Azure, it'll get you a scale set for your machines. It'll set you up your load balancers. It'll set you up your public IP addresses. It'll do all the rules for the load balancers and the, and the firewalls and that sort of stuff. So that's the way to do it. If you're if you're kind of hand rolling some of this stuff, then you're you're getting to the level where you're mixing the complexity of running containers itself with the complexity of your particular cloud and you might end up with you know with, with issues yeah he's saying uh he was giving more information uh calico which i thought calico was only a, a kubernetes thing and but he mentioned swarm so i'm not really sure um well yeah yeah if you're, I mean, if you're using and... docker enterprise with swarm and kubernetes then yes you'll be using calico for the for the networking layer um the so, so Kubernetes is, is different because with Docker Swarm, the networking is built in. Overlay network just works between the nodes. With Kubernetes, you have to bring your own pod network, uh, and there are different implementations. And as far as I know, um, the main one, so Calico, I think is still in beta. Um, we're working with with Tigera, who, who do the, the enterprise version, uh, to, to, to get that all kind of certified, ready for our next release of enterprise. Um, there's Calico, there's a couple of others, and I think that they're, they're all still kind of flagged as beta. So if you're talking about Kubernetes, then I'm not entirely surprised that you're getting networking issues. But having said that, uh, there, there, there is a working path because you can do it with Azure Kubernetes service. So when you spin up an AKS cluster, all the kind of networking stuff is all taken care of for you, and, and that just does work. So, you know, there is a route to getting, to getting it working. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, the networking part is you know, one of the biggest challenges too. Uh, also, you know, just getting all of the components of a of a container orchestrator to work with all the things in the cloud, like the specialized cloud storage, the specialized cloud net load balancers. I mean, it's not like it can't be done, but that that's a point of friction because everything's different and everything yeah. evolves different at different paces. Clouds upgrade their stuff before necessarily, you know, third-party companies do. So um, I've had people in the past with any container solution talking about the, the challenges with keeping up with the cloud vendor because the cloud vendor may not be updating their container components as fast as they update the rest of their stuff but 
I think that's a diminishing problem because they're all realizing that like the future for them is containers as well. So uh, I think at early days, it was more common that, you know, they didn't, they, it wasn't necessarily front and center for them to worry about a, a storage driver for Rexray mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, I had this idea last night that you could actually, you could feasibly have a scenario where, uh, and I don't know if anyone's doing this, but you could have a Kubernetes cluster Let's say you're only Kubernetes. You're not even Swarm, but all of your developers are Docker on Docker Desktop. They're you know they're all using the, def, the Docker workflow locally, and they're all using Compose because that's been the nice, easy tool locally. They don't want to run necessarily com- Kubernetes locally, or maybe they do, but they don't have to. They like that Compose YAML format. And then you have this ops team. Let's say you have an ops team that um, they would prefer on their Kubernetes clusters to use Helm, right, or use something that's already uh, templated YAML for the Kubernetes manifest a- and APIs, but that doesn't mean they have to be exclusive one or the other. As like, at least the way I'm looking at it, you could technically have that compose on Kubernetes running on the cluster. To um, so a theory I came up with, having I don't know if anybody's doing it, is maybe your ops team is using Helm and other tools for all their infrastructure stuff, right? The really complicated mm-hmm. stuff, the databases and. You know, because a lot of in a lot of enterprises, you're not running a database per app. You're usually running centralized databases and large systems. Um, and then when your developers show up and they say, "Hey, look, I've got some new, you know, .NET Core apps," or you know, I mean, that's a bad example. Maybe just Linux apps, whatever. And I've already got my compose. the The ops team doesn't have to say, "Okay, well, now I've got to make a manifest file for this, and I've got to manually convert it." They can just say, "Hey, look, we've already got the compose. It looks legit. Like it could work. You know, or maybe with some subtle changes, we're gonna." deploy it with that override file or something like that. And they can use that mm-hmm. Compose on Kubernetes for their homegrown apps and then you still use Helm and all the advantages of the pre-built, you know, the new operator pattern stuff and all that. Uh, I don't know if anyone's doing that, but it seemed like a legit idea for w- checking the boxes, right? Operators get full control of the things they care yeah. about. Developers mm-hmm. get, you know, their smooth workflow for a single YAML file or at least a single um, core YAML file that they don't have completely different YAML languages in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that would work really, really a nice clean delineation for I'm using Helm for all the third party stuff, you know, mm-hmm. where the publishers are going to publish me a, a Helm chart and our, our own applications don't need the horizontal pod auto scaling stuff. So I can just capture everything I need in the Compose. I've been using that Compose on Kubernetes lately, actually. I've been trying it out on all the clouds. So deploying it to make sure it works on AKS and, and GKE. Um, and it just works. Um, it, it covers the main stuff. So you can do configs in there. You can do secrets in there that map to, you know, the, the Kubernetes config maps and the Kubernetes secrets. Um, yeah, it works really nicely. Um, and in case you're listening, and this is uh, in the audio only format, this is called Compose on Kubernetes. I'm going to throw it up on the screen real quick. Um, it It's at github.com slash docker slash compose on Kubernetes with dashes in there. And uh, my, uh, Docker open sourced this last year. It was, mm. it was built in the Docker desktop for a while. So you could do this in Docker desktop for probably at least a year or more. And then they open sourced it last year at DockerCon. And what's nice about it as well is they have instructions because it runs on top of Kubernetes. And it's it's sort of like an API proxy almost. At least I don't know, not sure how you would define it, but it's got docs on um, all, like all these common formats: AKS, EKS, JKE, um, running even on Kine, Micro, and Minikube. All all the local options there, so you you're not forced uh, to use this with only Docker Desktop and Docker Enterprise. If you have Kubernetes already and you are using Compose locally for development, and you would like to try this out. 
It's totally open source. Check it out. They've got docs on installing in all the places. So um, like we said, it's got compatibility and architecture stuff in there. So you can go through and they basically tick the boxes uh, for what features in Compose translate to Kubernetes and which ones don't work. Uh, you know, like what things can you do in Kubernetes you can't do in Compose and, you know, back and forth. It's pretty cool. Um, definitely check that out if you're a shop that's interested in the, what I would call the Docker way of developer workflow for containers, which is largely yeah. about Compose, right? And that, um, that whole thing, you can automate the whole deployment. So I've been working on um, GitHub actions that spin up uh, an AKS cluster. Um, the action goes and deploys Compose and Kubernetes. And then when you push code, it takes your Compose file and deploys it to AKS. It's, yeah, you can you can automate the whole stuff. It's, it's actually really neat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have like, uh, I need, I need to get on a plane soon because I have all this reading on GitHub actions because everybody's starting <laughs> to write all this stuff now, right? Like in the last, uh, in the Kubernetes weekly this week, they put in a thing about, uh, doing Kubernetes, you know, basically get ops. It sounded like from, uh, GitHub actions. And mm -hmm. that, that's where I, I get super excited because CICD is great when you really, really need it. But in so many small environments, especially ones that are new to continuous deployment and things like DevOps and GitOps, those teams don't necessarily need to do that. And this was a conversation from last week, actually. We had uh, two guys from, uh, from CloudBees that make Jenkins mm -hmm. on, and we were talking about Jenkins versus Jenkins X and how Jenkins X is basically a, the only thing that they have in common is that they're CI, CD products, and they have the same name. But other than that, <laughs> they're, they're completely different, and that Jenkins X is a small, small subset of what you can do with Jenkins itself, but it's designed for that automated workflow. And I feel like GitHub yeah. Actions, um, it, it's basically Microsoft getting into the CI, CD game again. <laughs> uh, well, Microsoft is GitHub. Yeah, they yeah, exactly. That yeah, Microsoft <laughs> Microsoft's got so many different CI CD tools over the years, you know, or at least uh, CI tools especially if you're uh code code tracking team foundation server all these like uh swarm uh, source safe like if you go back long enough, they've got lots that. of different products. Yeah. Hey, let me show you very very quickly because I know yeah. we're already well over time. Let yeah, me fine. show you. Uh so that's display too. So can you see my this is a this is a GitHub repo? Uh, that uh, actually this was generated from a, a Docker template. I've been using some of the Docker templates. Uh, in the doc GitHub um, folder where the workflows are, everything's just a YAML file. So each of these is a workflow uh, that can be, be created by by something happening. So in this case, I've got a, a this is going to, when on push, when somebody pushes to my, um, to my repo and the push contains a file, which is actually this file, then it will kick this off. And all it does is run a container. So all it does is it runs a container and it sends it in a bunch of secrets which are captured in GitHub. And uh, this is going to create me an AKS cluster. Uh, so it's going to create me a Kubernetes cluster in Azure. And the interesting thing about this is in the settings, uh, I've got these secrets here and I can't read them. So as an admin, I can set up the repo. I can put all the secrets in there for all the Azure automation, all the Docker Hub stuff. And then developers can go and work on their actions. And they use they use the secrets without ever having access to them. So that's really neat. So when with, with this with this particular example, it spins up uh, AKS, it spins up Cosmos DB, which is an Azure database. And then on every push, it does this bit here, which is a stack deploy. And again, it's all it's like it's all just containers. It does a Docker Compose build and a Docker Compose push to push the my actual parts of the app. 
And then because I've got this, I've got this dependency for my Cosmos database, it runs a container which fetches a connection string. It saves that connection string as a secret in my Kubernetes cluster, which is pretty cool. And then it uses Compose to Kubernetes to deploy my application. So my, my Compose file, which again is in the same repo, um, my Compose file is expecting to have got a production Compose file that is expecting to find a secret. And that secret is populated by the GitHub action, which fetches it from Azure and saves it in Kubernetes. So like, these things are really neat. And it's just tiny bits of YAML. You don't have to use containers, but if you do, then suddenly you've got containers that do all your bits and pieces and you just tie them together. That's, that's pretty great. I, I'm, yeah. There's not a lot of stuff out there because not everybody's had access to uh, GitHub actions. But now I believe... Um, I think all you, do, all you have to do is opt in. Like You have to ask now. Everybody can get it if uh, they want. I don't know. I don't know. I got in because because uh, of my friends again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You got people. Um, <laughs> the the I know. I think I read yesterday that uh, it's it's not technically default to everyone, but uh, you know, it's I got invited right. in uh, like a couple. I don't know, a month ago, and that if you oh. ask, or if you go and sign up on the form or whatever, and opt in, you basically get in. So okay, cool. uh, if, if someone's looking at wanting to do that, because I've I've had that question several times over the months, is hey, can you hook me up? And I'm like, I got. I got no people. <laughs> I, <help laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a I'm just a Docker person. I'm not a I'm not a everything on the internet person. Um, all right. So some more great questions. Uh, I think we should jump to WSL two because we've hinted at it, and I feel like that deserves a conversation. Uh, even though we we are running a little long, but hey, you know what? It's the internet. If we're if we're still talking and we're still hanging out, like it's all good. Charlie's asking another question. He's got some great questions today. Um, about uh, any prospects on running Docker on WSL2, I may be, many will be reluctant to go and basically do the insider preview, which is a Windows OS beta uh, build of Windows 10, just to be able to try it out for now. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yes, you can. Like, it's uh, if you look at the Docker engineering blog, which is a relatively new thing. So, it's uh, DockerEngineeringBlog.com or something like that. Um, we've got people who've been doing that stuff. So, we had a very early access to WSL two. Uh, we got Docker up and running on that, and we were looking at that for the next evolution of Docker Desktop. So, there won't be a VM to run your Linux containers. It will be WSL two. Uh, it's super neat. Like, it's really good. It's pretty close to being like production quality, but we have a hard dependency on WSL2, and, and like you, I'm not entirely keen on, on having my daily production machines running an early insider preview. So, right. um, yeah, we, like, we, we will make that happen as soon as it goes to, to the wider public. Uh, we will do a release of Docker Desktop. How we do it, I'm not sure whether it's going to be whether it's going to be smart enough to say you've got WSL2, so we'll use that, and if not, we'll use Hyper-V. Um, but ultimately, like we definitely want to do it because at the moment we have to, you know, we have to manage that hyper VVM. We have to do all that stuff, and we kind of won't need to. We'll just have Docker, the Docker engine running in WSL two, which would just be stock Docker engine. So yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to be very cool. Um, we can't accelerate it for you. Like it's it's when it comes out in Windows. If you're not comfortable with the insider, then you, you're just going to have to wait. Yeah, and yeah. um, that's the thing. I, I this this tech is really really cool, um, and I'm excited for it. We're just not used to getting Microsoft to throw out a beta of some significant new advancement in Windows almost a year ahead of when they plan to actually launch it. Um, so, you know, if we had, if, if they hadn't told us for six months, we all wouldn't be sitting around going, how do we make this work now? Uh, <laughs> you know, but they, it's one of those things where you can be careful what you ask for. They, they're releasing things in preview earlier, um, but that also means that, that we now know of a thing that will exist 
we just don't want to have to wait the eight months or whatever it was going to be. Because when it when it came out, everybody was talking about it in my uh, Docker community and my Slack for the all my courses, and everybody's shit chatting about it in there. And I was saying, well, you know, you do realize it's going to be. At, they said like 2020, so we at least eight or nine months before we can expect this in a Windows update that we can all get without going inside our preview. Um, yep. You know, so don't you know? It's cool to go check it out, and it's and bravo to Docker for getting out this. Uh, this update on the on the edge si- cycle for this. This is really neat. Is it on edge or is it a separate download? I, I don't know if you just said it's that. Just, uh, uh, so, so uh, like I said, I, I'm not a fan of running inside a preview. <laughs> so I haven't tried. I've seen it in action. I haven't tried right. it. Myself. I, think, I think it's a separate thing still. Yeah, I have. Uh, um, I'm able this year on my Mac. I run Parallels as my virtualization, and oh, par- and oh, yeah, it, I love Parallels. I mean, VMware Fusion's fine, and it traditionally has worked well with Docker. But this year, I've got Docker for Windows to work in a VM in Parallels on a Mac, and I now have one that's dedicated WSL two with the Insider Preview. Uh, just just so I could check out WSL two because I, yeah, I was yeah. super super excited, and it's exactly as everybody keeps saying. It's like it's super fast. Um, they don't have all the bits yet. So like the, the file mounting feature set, that's going to be better than the, the network sharing we had before, uh, it's yeah. going to be better. Um, and I, I don't know if you saw on the captain's channel, but we were talking when it first came out, the Docker, one of the Docker engineers was in there saying that, Oh, you know, this preview is fine, but it's going to get way better. Like we already have plans to integrate the storage better so that it's just, it, it just works. And you don't have to think about this whole my Linux file system versus my Windows file system and which one's which and how to, what the path is going to be and all that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm excited. I want it to, I want it to be here tomorrow, but uh, at least we know that there's tons of people working on it. And it's, it's one of those things where it, we won't probably have to wait, no guarantees, but we probably won't have to wait very long after the Microsoft, deplo- you know, announcement of the new WSL2 before we see Docker throwing out some cool stuff. Because I think yeah. a lot of people on Windows are looking for ways to make Windows, Docker, and cross-platform development just easier. And I'm, Microsoft clearly knows that because for them to come out with WSL2 only a few years ago and then it co- essentially completely can change, change out the architecture just in a, f- a couple of years later when people are just running WSL1 all day long. Like everyone I know on Windows that's doing Docker development is running WSL at some point. They're, they, yeah. they, it's just a natural extension of them. Oh, yeah, I'm a developer on Windows. I'm definitely going to use WSL. So uh, I'm glad I'm glad we're getting even more uh, feature set there, and uh, it's pretty cool stuff. So, um, the and uh, is there a site? Is it beta? Didn't you say? I don't know if you said that or not. Beta.docker.com. Uh, uh, I don't actually know where the, the so there was an engineering blog that went out uh, this week or last week with an update of what WSL2 is doing. Um, yeah, it's on beta. So yeah, beta.docker.com. You can sign up for the preview Docker desktop for WSL2. But yes, like Charlie was mentioning, that does require uh, that you basically insider preview your Windows machine, which essentially turns into a beta. I I warn you that I have been bitten by the betas of <laughs> insider preview. It's definitely beta. The tech previews are definitely beta. So definitely don't do this on your production machine. And you know, if, if you have to make money on that machine or you have to do work for a company on that machine, probably should put it in a VM. But you know, a lot of people work in a VM every day, so it, it's feasible that you get it to work and inside a virtual machine, and you get to get get to experience the awesomeness of WSL two. Um, all right, so let me look at any other questions we have here. Um, Charlie's asking again uh, about the IIS image size. Is there any way to shrink the IIS image size? But I feel like we've kind of answered that, right? That 
You can't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So if you look at the image size between uh, Windows Server twenty sixteen and twenty nineteen, that they they reduced it from six gig to to two gig by removing Windows features. Uh, I mean, there are presumably a few more gains to be had, but I don't think we, if you want full Windows Server that can run full IS, that can run your legacy ASP applications, um, you need a lot of Windows behind that, and I, I don't think they're going to get that much smaller. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think. The dimi- we're, it's, we're in the situation of diminishing returns over time. I mean, the, the same can be yeah. true. If you look at all the images, like just Linux images, they uh, even like Ubuntu, uh, you know, just in the last few years, it keeps getting smaller. But the big advancements in shrinking these things was like three or plus years ago. Like that's when it went from, you know, 200 plus meg down to 180. And then it kept yeah. shrinking from there. So I, th- I don't expect us to go suddenly from, you know, 150 or 120 meg down to five. Like it's <laughs> we're not going to turn into... Uh, uh, Alpine or anything like that. So yeah. it, uh, I think a lot of companies have spent a lot of time on this. And you, uh, the way I understand it, the last thing I heard on the rumor mill, rumor mill was that Doc, um, sorry, Windows teams had outsourced to a bunch of overseas uh, engineering teams to basically s- walk through all the code of basically every system in Windows to try to figure out what can we pull out, what can we pull out. What can, we, what can we get rid of? What do we don't need? Like, we're, look at the system hooks, and do we need that in, in here? And basically going DLL by DLL uh, to figure out what is what can they not break and pull out. And um, I think oh. for some of us also at a totally different topic, it was sad to hear that Nano is no longer a full operating system. But, um, yeah. Yes. Well, that was, you know, I mean... They're doing a lot of they're doing a lot of interesting new development in public, and they are listening to a lot of how this stuff gets used. So the original conception for Nano Server was, I want to run some flavor of Windows on bare metal, and I'm only going to use it for containers. Um, and it kind of turns out people didn't. You know, a lot of the people who were getting into Windows containers needed to run Windows Server Core to get to get the the runtime for their older applications. So they weren't using Nano on bare metal. And you know, the, the install base was tiny. Um, and by making it a container only OS, they could cut an awful lot of stuff out of it. So that's why Nano Server went from one gig to hundred meg because it doesn't need uh, a PS2 driver to support someone plugging in a mouse because like it's just a container. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm, while you were talking, I was looking up GitHub actions cause we're getting people asking in chat about the GitHub actions and Docker stuff. And, um, there's, uh, not a lot out there yet. So that's probably an opportunity if uh, sometimes we have Docker captains on the, uh, on the chat, but there's any on there today. <laughs> I'm sure Elton's busy, so I'm not going to ask him to go make this demo, but, uh, show an example <laughs> of taking GitHub code and automating a deployment like automating a build and an image push and a deployment, if that's even possible in, in actions, because I, I have very little experience with them other than just like watching other people's videos. Um, I just got into the beta weeks ago, so I haven't had to have a chance to play with it. Um, I, I'm really curious in that because, I mean, again, it's, CI, it's not going to be uh, anytime soon a full CI CD solution. But if, if for these, you know, I have people that say, hey, look, I've got a personal project. I'm running it on Docker Swarm, three nodes. You know, I'd love to be able to have automated deployments and builds that don't require me to also have this other product somewhere else. Um, and I, I would love to be able to point them to a, a you know, a walkthrough, a tutorial or a tool that says, hey, uh, really all you need is Docker Hub, GitHub, and your Swarm. And this, these things just, you know, it's GitOps all day long. You put commits, certain branches, they go to the server. You know, services yeah. get updated. Um, and we've and we've seen some stuff out there, but um, with GitHub Actions, I feel like we're now 
um, we're getting closer to the the dream. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, so unfortunately, I spent I spent Monday recording the exact video you're talking about, and I can tell you it is super slick. But at the moment, we've only shared it with a few people. So, if it goes public, I'll tell you. But right now, you just take my word for it that you can do it. It's excellent. Um, yeah. I'll yeah. show you the video, Brett, but I don't know if we can go public yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, uh, you, you know, don't don't tell me. I might just tell the world. Uh, <laughs> uh, so this is uh, we have we've gone on. Uh, we might be breaking close to the record. I feel like we're in um, uh, record breaking territory. On I think, going, I think the whole audience left. Like, yeah, no, no, no. We've got. Uh, I can tell you, we've got. <laughs> We got 22 people live right now. Uh, we've been, um, we've had hundreds of people, and there's definitely a lot of interest for this. So we've had lots of uh, people in the live stream. We've had, uh, uh, yeah, it's 180 people on the show so far. So um, it, there's, it's definitely a, a huge amount of interest, and I think it it spans like we've gone through like everything from local development. We didn't even go into like, you know, using Visual Studio Code to you know to hook into your your container and running with all the new plugins for Visual Studio Code that's really making it great to run containers for development and make it an mm-hmm. even smoother experience if you're going to consider using that as your editor. Um, that that area, I, I continue to be um, amazed at what things are showing up in Visual Studio Code as plugins to automate and make things easier for developers. I mean, I'm a Vim person, but it's... <laughs> I feel like I'm in a substandard situation because all this cool yeah, stuff is showing up. But if you're a VIM person, you've been thinking about that for years, surely. Yeah. But yeah, VS Code is astonishing, and it went from nothing. Like, you know, in a couple of years now, like every single demo on every conference yeah. ever, they're using VS Code. Yeah, people that don't have anything to do with Windows, the OS, or Visual Studio, the original full-fledged yeah. uh, IDE, are sh- yeah showing up. Um, you know, I, when I see someone on Linux showing Linux containers and a demo... Uh, and they're Linux on their desktop, and Linux is their server, and they're using Visual Studio Code to do stuff in containers uh, and develop stuff. That's when I'm like, yeah, this is this is saturated the market. And, and I think Stack Overflow had some statistics from their their latest uh, stuff this year that how how high of uh, percentage of people are using Visual Studio Code coming from nowhere, uh, out yeah. of nowhere, you know, um, supplanting uh, you know IDEs that have been around for decades. So we haven't even talked about that, but I feel like that could be a whole other show. I think last month we did uh, some stuff. Ray and I on the show uh, just showing how we set up our IDE and shell environments for development in containers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, but there's so much there, and the code pairing and the the development in containers and all the, all that stuff you can automate there. It, there's a lot to it. So uh, we're gonna have to come out come up again on the show and talk about that. Um, yeah, let's just schedule a whole day. We schedule a whole day. We go live <laughs> streaming on Twitch for 24 hours nonstop, <laughs> Docker. <laughs> You know, like our at about hour four, you know, there's not gonna there's gonna be crickets in chat, and we're gonna be sitting here like I need another Red Bull. <laughs> um, well, thanks again for being on the show. Um, I'm gonna remind you all that um, Elton's got tons of stuff out there. So let me just remind you with some URLs. We've got uh, he's got Manning books, um, including a new one, so you can get forty percent off that stuff using the code P O D D O C D E V nineteen. Pod Doc Dev 19. That'll get you the discount. You can get his blog. Uh, you can get him on Twitter. His Twitter handle's right there in the screen. Uh, Elton Stoneman right there. And 
Uh, his blog, which we've mentioned multiple times on the show, has everything. That's right. You got to point to it. It's hard to point when you're looking in the camera. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you can, of course, find him find him in the Docker community chat. He's in there. Uh, he's at the conference near you. He's going to be traveling to Europe. Well, he's in, he's living in Europe. I'm, I'm traveling to Berlin next month. And when are you going to be in? Uh, is it Barcelona? I'm in Amsterdam the month. I'm in Poland next month. And I'm in Lithuania the month after. So I've got a bit of travel coming up. All nice. great conferences. All Docker, all day long. (laughs) So thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.